Hello, and welcome to Returning to Us, a podcast that gives you strategies and tips for how to hack your brain, build and strengthen relationships, and to teach people how to recognize and neutralize their emotional states. I'll discuss emotional intelligence and regulation, how food and exercise impact the body and brain, and share lessons from my own lived experiences. I'm Lauren Spiegelmeyer, the founder of The Behavior Hub, which is an organization that works to reduce the stressors of raising and educating children through a brain and biology-based lens. In these episodes, I'll share stories and strategies from my own life, work, and research, answer listener questions, and wrap it up with a try-it-at-home tip. Decades worth of information in just minutes. You ready? All right, today we are switching gears. We are talking about the pathway for learning. How do we, as children, students, adults, participants, learn? And how does the brain store that information? Okay, so I want you to close your eyes the first time I read through this. I'm going to read through it a couple of times. Close your eyes and just kind of visualize in your mind this sequence of how information is, is coming in and how it's stored. Okay, so... Information or input comes in through your senses and your senses will send it back to the thalamus kind of in the back of your brain and the thalamus will start to process it. Simultaneously, while it's processing it, it will send it back out to the appropriate lobes, the lobes being kind of the somewhat exterior and generally kind of all over your brain. So information is kind of shooting from the back of the thalamus to different parts of the brain and then once the lobes receive it, then it will go to sub areas like the amygdala. I know I'm speaking in probably foreign language to many of you, but we'll talk about the amygdala in a second. What I want you to know about the amygdala is it's like the emotional control center. If you've seen the movie Inside Out, your amygdala is that like emotional control tower that all the characters go up into. So the amygdala's job then when it receives the information is to decide. Is this information safe, neutral? Can I send it to my memory storage? Or is it not? And I need to recruit other people because I need to go into a state of alarm or emergency. So if it recruits other areas of the brain, it will recruit those fight, flight, freeze, fawn areas of the brain where we just become overwhelmed and taken over by emotion. And it could even be not to the sense of like, like trauma, but it could be stress enough that it shuts off other parts of our, our brain workings. If that information was deemed safe, it will be sent to the memory area, the memory storage area, which is known as the hippocampus. And when it is sent there, it then reintegrates with the cortex, aka the top and mostly the, the front of your brain for long-term storage. Okay. So what I want to ask you to do is I want you to draw your brain with your finger. Well, you can draw it on a piece of paper if you have it, but if not, draw it in the air. So if you know what your brain looks like from kind of the side, it's it's kind of like an oval. So you draw an oval in the air. Okay, then the input is coming in, the information through the senses. So think about where the senses are located in, on your brain, your ears, your eyes, your mouth, your nose. Okay, so you kind of just shoot lines in from the exterior inward. And then you're going to take those lines and loop them. Take your finger and loop them back into the back of the brain, the thalamus for processing. 
Then we're going to go from the thalamus and we're going to shoot back out to the lobes. Then from the lobes, we're going to twist back into the amygdala. Then from the amygdala, we're either going to go straight down to the brainstem or we're going to go over a little bit to the right to the hippocampus. If we land in the hippocampus, you can make a star with your hand. Woo! We are sending back out to the cortex for long-term storage. Wow, that's a lot of steps to store information. So you can understand maybe how information gets misstored, how information gets missed just in general. And if someone is under distress, especially regular and regularly and frequently, how those parts of the brain might not all work together so nicely so information is missed. This process is important to know because we want to kind of shape it up and improve it and know that if kids miss information, this is maybe why they miss it. So let's go back to that amygdala, that memory, not memory, it's connected to memory, but it's the emotional control center. So what happens here is the amygdala is created to protect you. And, and some stress is good stress, helps us grow. But sometimes the amygdala can mistake stress or input as an actual threat, even though it's not threatening. It just subconsciously feels threatening. To the extent of preventing the prefrontal cortex, that's the thinking brain, that's the front of your brain, that's logic, ration, rationality, problem solving from doing its job. So the amygdala can fire its alarm so loud that it causes the prefrontal cortex, the thinking brain, to not work properly or at all. Why on earth would our brain do something like that? Well, the amygdala is responsible for our fight, flight, freeze, fawn response. So during stressful moments, we get disconnected from this rational thinking and we go into impulsive reactions, fight, flight, freeze, fawn. So we lose connection to what we call maybe like your upstairs brain because it's up at the top of your head, functions like memory and even like flexibility, um, the ability to be flexible <laughs> and not physically flexible, like mentally flexible, self-regulation, all these things shut off. So we have a difficult time focusing. We have a difficult time controlling our impulses. We have a difficult time remembering instructions or remembering information in general. And we definitely have a difficult time making smart and wise decisions. As a result, when we are feeling these big emotions like threat, fear, anger, the amygdala thinks that we're in danger, sounds off the alarm and shuts off the prefrontal cortex and all kinds of things happen. So this is why with young kids, it's even more challenging because they don't have these parts of their brain so developed yet. And they can easily mistake things for threats, like a child stealing their toy, <laughs> which causes them to hit. Well, they hit because their brain system isn't developed yet. And they didn't have the rationale, rationality to know that hitting is bad and they're not actually being threatened. And they can just use their logic and their rationale, their problem solving to get uh, the rational thinking to get the toy back to ask for it back or to get help to get it back. Whew, wow, goodness. So let's dig into emotion a little bit more. Emotion is, or your emotional network is activated um, or it activates your, your physiology. So essentially your emotional state impacts your state of mind. And you can't be fully present and ready to listen and learn if you're too emotional or if you're in a heightened emotional state. The more we understand what is going on for our students or even our participants, if they're adults, the more we can better support them in listening and learning and behaving. So what does this mean for teaching? 
or working with humans, <laughs> that emotional states, the state in which you are in emotionally, influences your ability to keep your attention, to memory, to memory, to memorize, to remember, to learn, and to make meaning properly of whatever you're experiencing. And our emotions are contagious. So if one person goes wild, it's likely other people will join in or at least feel a, a sense of like heightened state because we have these lovely things called mirror neurons. <laughs> That's why they say you're most like the five people you spend the majority of your time with because you're around those people. You, you see those behaviors, your brain starts to mirror them and you start to think and act like them. So we need to know, we need to know that learning in the brain it's all dynamic. It's very complex. It's very variable. And it requires interaction between the individual, the person or the student, and the environment. And these states of emotion also determine if we are going to be motivated and ready to pay attention, learn, engage. And if we aren't paying attention, learning, engaging, we are not going to retain much of what is presented. So all of it ties back to emotion. We've got to regulate our emotion to be able to think logically. And we must acknowledge students' emotions and channel them into the learning process. Okay, we must manipulate their states and not in a bad way, in a good way. We need to change their states to prep them for learning. How can we do this? Lots of ways. I mean, think about what would create a lovely, learning, happy environment. One, being able to regulate your own emotions and being a role model of emotional regulation. Celebrating small wins, being funny, adding humor, silly dances, silly songs, creating controversy and not in a, necessarily in a, a bad way like it might sound, but things like game shows, debates, competitions. Include more introspection. I don't feel like we do a lot of this in education. Older kids, journaling. Drawing kids younger can journal in the sense of like drawing pictures of how they're feeling or what's in their mind. Interviews, reflection-based tasks. You could have a beginning of the class handshake or motto. You could leave the class with affirmations. You could do cheers. You could pause and stretch. You could share quotes or post quotes. You could play positive music. The options are unlimited for how to create a positive emotional environment in your space. And it's important to take the temperature of your emotional room <laughs> both the room with kids in it and the room without kids in it and the individuals themselves because if the emotion seems or the energy even seems off high low you might want to consider doing something to alter that state to change the state encourage them to participate in something that changes the state to prepare them for learning to get them more regulated it's a complex process the brain is a complex thing we're learning more and more and more about it every day so much to think about here. Okay, I'm gonna let you sit with that. You might wanna go back and re-listen because that was a lot of science information, but good information. And it takes me to today's listener question, which is how can we help students who are stagnant, may have stress, but don't give us anything at all, positive or negative behaviors? Let's see here. I'm just trying to understand that question. So I'm, I'm thinking what they're saying, this person is that the students are maybe really stressed out seemingly, and they're not giving anything like they're just neutral. They're just no emotion. That is a sign of me. That is a sign of me. <laughs> that is a sign to me of survival state that kind of almost 
freeze and maybe even fawn-like state because that's not very normal. If, if someone is in an okay frame of mind or emotional state, they are engaging on some level. Because again, if we go back to that hunter-gatherer eons ago, we want to be engaged, we want to belong, we want to be involved. So if we're not participating at all, and we're just kind of numb, neutral, not showing a lot of emotion. That's a little bit of a concern for me. That means to me that it's likely, and sometimes it could be other things like tired or hungry or dehydrated. But if this is happening regularly or a lot, I'm wondering if the child is in a state of survival, like just it's, it's like the shutdown state. Like it's like the last state you can be in before you're just yeah, you're getting ready to die. And they're not, they're not dying. It's just the mental um, process of it. So you've got like stress, which is normal and okay. And stress helps you grow and you learn from stress. And then you've got like extended stress or chronic stress, and that's not so good. And that puts you in this kind of heightened state of emotion. And then you've got stress to level like trauma-based even, um, where it's so overwhelming to the brain and body that it's just shut down. And it's, it's trying to prevent the body from, from basically dying. And it's not necessarily dying, but it kind of is because stress to that level is causing deterioration and deterioration eventually too much means death. So, um, sorry to be so morbid, <laughs> but, um, for me, th this is probably up beyond something that someone could help with in the classroom. I mean, there are little things you can do, like build a relationship, check in and see if they're okay. But at the point in which someone's in a survival state, it really takes a professional, um, in that field, like a mental health professional, a guidance counselor, a psychologist, a psychiatrist, mental health therapist, like you, the, so this particular person child may need lots of skills and lots of skills kind of more condensed and kind of more immediately whereas they're in such a state of kind of goneness that it's hard for a teacher to do their job and pull them out of that state they almost have to take on a full another role of psychiatrist psychologist whatever it is to help get them out of the state and they may not even have that background because most teachers naturally wouldn't um so what i would do get other members of the school involved or get outside resources involved. Um, but again, just make sure that it is like a chronic ongoing thing. It's not just like a one day I'm tired or I'm sick or, you know, <laughs> those can all cause shutdown states as well. So something to think about. To wrap up the show, I'm going to share with you our try at home tip, which is drink less coffee, drink more water. Coffee is caffeine. Caffeine isn't necessarily always great for the body. It's okay in moderation, but I would encourage you to do a trial where you do less coffee and less coffee and less. If you're a three day drinker, three day cup, three cup a day drinker, try and cut back to two and then to one and then to half and then to decaf and then to no coffee. And it's not that you need to give up coffee completely. It's just, if you're working toward improvement and betterment, you want your body to function optimally. It's probably not the coffee that's making you feel less tired. It's the dehydration that is making you feel exhausted. So can you give your body more energy in different ways instead of kind of band-aid it with basically uh, a drug. <laughs> yeah. But again, it's not all wrong and bad. It's just, can you work towards improvement, betterment, micro steps? I'm a coffee drinker. I love coffee. I don't even care about coffee for the caffeine. I just love the way coffee tastes, but I am actively trying to drink more water and replace coffee with other things just so that my body is healthier. That's it for today's episode. Returning to us podcast. Don't forget our try to home tip, less coffee, more water. And if you want more support in the areas of stress, trauma, behavior, the brain, I would love to be a part of your learning coaching journey. And I created the behavior hub to help with this. Do a lot of coaching for teachers, parents, schools, 
admin leadership. And in addition to that, we have some online courses for which you can get university credit. So contact me in any way on thebehaviorhub.com. And don't forget to lock in what you learn by sharing it with someone else to help your brain send it to storage because the more you repeat it, the more you're going to remember it and the more it solidifies the memory in the brain. Until next episode, I am Lauren Spiegelmeyer and thank you for joining me.